Hello, I'm Andrew Garten. I'm a filmmaker and a producer with a background in online media. I also drink um, green tea. Today, you're listening to Right to Know, a podcast series kind of squeezed out of my book of the same name, exploring the internet's ripple effect within India's rural and tribal communities. Now, this uh, podcast is recorded in my home studio in the bush just outside of Melbourne in Australia. So occasionally you may hear birds and my grumpy computer. But overall, you'll hear some of the people I'd met in India, sounds I'd recorded there, and of course, me. These are essentially my personal observations of the complex challenges technicians, information communication trainers, community workers and entrepreneurs face in rural India. Places that are difficult to get to, places where even the most adventurous of private enterprise have not yet reached. And then there are the challenges entailed with training millions of people unable to read nor write, let alone understand the myriad of services available on the web, let alone even comprehend what a World Wide Web is and how to discern fact from fiction online. Right to Know is also a story about the making of a film. In 2015, I went to India to make Ocean in a Drop. We visited 14 rural and tribal villages with the Digital Empowerment Foundation. The film, much like the book, tells the story of how these far-flung communities are finding their way on the internet. But our story doesn't begin with a film, nor does it begin in India. Our story begins when the internet was a mere 2,000 or so websites. Our story begins in 1994, somewhere in Indochina, somewhere in Southeast Asia, somewhere out there. thicket of electricity and phone cabling slung over rusted scaffolding, window frames and bamboo poles, a canopy woven throughout the urban fringe of Phnom Penh, Ho Chi Minh City, Hanoi, Manila, Jakarta, Beijing, Nanjing and Guangzhou. In the dark rubble and garbage, amid the unruly mess, ragged and shadowy people would emerge, risking their lives, draping raw electricity cables one over the other, adding to an illegal maze of brazen off-grid grids, siphoning power to light their ramshackle dwellings. It was 1994, and I had a Macintosh PowerBook, a Zixel 14000 board modem, a Sony Hi8 video camera, fine-tipped pens and a journal, all of it slung over my shoulder. I also carried a small toolkit and cables to hardwire modems into hotel room telephone sockets. In most cases, it was the only way to get a line out. At that time, you were only online for as long as it took to place a call to whichever server you had an account on to make that modem connection happen. And then you had to be quick. You had to send all of your pre-drafted emails and download any waiting for you. In my case, it meant making an international call to the Pactoc server in Sydney. 
Now, PacDoc was a store and forward email service set up to support community organisations in the, in the South Pacific Islands. It collected all my Australian and international messages, and you had to be frugal and quick. Every second online mattered because it cost so much. Travelled with Jagdish Parikh. To me, Jagdish was a kind of legend in the world of computer networking at that time. He'd connected workers' unions and lobbyist groups to all sorts of computer networks in South and Southeast Asia. We also worked with internet pioneers Suchit Nanda and Leah Fernandez. Combined, we conducted the first study of ICTs or information communication technology use in the region. The entire project was commissioned by the International Development Research Centre, or IDRC. We were also required to introduce the fledgling World Wide Web to universities, governments and telecommunications providers to gauge their interest, and it's curious to recall how some were amazed and many were not at all. Our findings were eventually published in the Pan-Asia Networking Report. It was an era of many, many firsts. still carry a laptop and a video camera, but I arrived in India 21 years later with a smartphone and a tablet from which I read A Guide for the Perplexed, Paul Cronin's exemplary interviews with filmmaker Werner Herzog, a book that would become a kind of lifeline whenever I found myself perplexed by India and its ravishingly beautiful and beguiling people. In 1994, phones were not yet entirely mobile. But 21 years later, there was no need for hardwired jacking into telephone lines. Prepaid broadband is cheap in India and increasingly abundant, yet vast areas of rural India remain hidden from the internet. Basic mobile telephony is widespread with many innovative messaging services providing information to villagers through a series of text commands and voicemail. Oral communication is still imperative in a population where the illiterate outnumber the literate. 70% of its vast population, its invisible majority, is based in vast rural areas where telecommunications infrastructure is patchy to non-existent. In 2016, over 460 million out of India's total population of 1.3 billion found their way to the internet. By 2021, Statista.com estimates India will be home to an incredible 635.8 million internet users. UNESCO describes the places where the internet has it reached as India's media dark, where the means to access critical and locally relevant information through anything other than a basic mobile phone is not only non-existent, it's entirely unknown. These are communities in vast rural regions where millions of people have barely seen products made from plastic and those that have are not yet aware of its inability to dissolve harmlessly into the environment. It's incomprehensible, and I'll use this word a few times throughout the series, to come to grips with the fact that 
over a quarter of India's population still lives below the poverty line. There are millions of people with little or no access to education, with few means to know their rights, let alone know much about their own country. Community radio stations, which would otherwise reach many of these people, struggle to access licenses, and where there is no electricity, there is no telephony, and certainly no internet. The Digital Empowerment Foundation, who partnered with me on Ocean in a Drop, their plan is to use whatever creative, strategic and entrepreneurial means available to encourage, stimulate and mobilise a billion people with the education and the tools, which they describe as a kind of digital literacy, to step out of the media dark by 2020. That's one billion people presently considered illiterate, one billion unaware of their rights, and least of all, their right to know that they indeed do have rights, and that's a billion more people on the internet. It's quite a vision. And, uh, you know, so, 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 so This is Ravi. Ravi works with the Digital Empowerment Foundation. With the help of technology, we have managed to create an ecosystem where um, we are able to even, we are able to preserve the traditional occupation from dying and uh, these people are also making money. So, I mean, these are, you know, these, these are some of the wonderful stories that we came across during the travel. And then we visited 14 villages located in nine districts in Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh and Bihar. We travelled across highways reduced to rubble, mud, sand and surfaces so uneven, large vehicles were seen toppled and abandoned on the roadside. One route led us into a jungle in the middle of the night. We had to retrace our steps for fear of being bogged. Tigers, we were told, roamed this area. We took trains to get to the furthest locations, amazed that we could lug cameras, lights, tripods, along with our backpacks, jammed into every available space within our sleeper compartments. And it takes great determination to get to these remote communities, and even more to install communication towers, computer centres, and the training that follows. In fact, one doesn't have to travel far to find places where telecommunications is lacking. The outer rim of India's media dark begins less than 200 kilometres out from New Delhi, where, if it weren't for the massive electricity towers protruding from fields of cheerful mustard plants, you could be anywhere in historical time, anywhere other than the 21st century. We visited a project called Wireless for Communities, an ambitious network of community-built and owned telecommunication towers delivering wireless broadband into villages that had barely heard a radio. An early version of this project runs out of the Sankalp Santhan, an organisation based in the village of Mamoni in Baran. We drove partway through a wildlife sanctuary to get there, and we found a nine-metre-tall broadband wireless tower villagers had built from junk. Yeah. लोहा का बाढ़ पड़ा हुआ था वहां से लाके इकट्ठा करना चालू कर दिया 
इकट्ठा करके एक लोकल मिस्त्री को एक फैब्रिकेटर है उसको बुला के लाए हम लोग और हमने उससे कहा कि हमको इस तरह दिस इज संकल्प संतान्स कोफाउंडर मोटोलॉजी टेलिंग मी हाउ ही ड्राइव फ्रॉम विलेज टू विलेज लुकिंग फॉर स्क्रैप मेटल लोडिंग व्हाट ही कुड फाइंड ऑनटू अ ट्रेलर द फाइनल कंस्ट्रक्शन वाज वेल्डेड एंड इरेक्टेड बाय पीपल विद नो इंजीनियरिंग एक्सपर्टीज व्हाटसोएवर मोटोलॉजी's junk tower was uprighted by a crane driver who happened to be working on a nearby construction site It was one thing soldering the entire edifice into shape it was another thing getting it to stand up now the junk tower transmits wireless broadband to a network of similar towers 35 kilometers apart reaching 10 villages all tribal communities at the low end of the caste food chain each village in the network was provided with an information resource center often installed nearby a school each center is equipped with computers software and training often unique to the needs of each location with trainers drawn from surrounding villages but that's not all this network can run independently of the internet if their broadband provider drops out the village network remains online interacting through their own independent web server and a miraculously functional video conferencing and telemedicine platform you can actually have your blood pressure checked in any of these villages I've never seen a wireless network let alone a community built one quite like it. We watched a video conferencing session in action. Three locations logged in, no lag, no ads, just village kids checking in on each other once a day. These kids seem to be getting to know each other irrespective of tribal or caste origins. In fact, caste prejudice amongst these budding cyberspace travelers has all but eroded. One resource center tutor, Shraban, in the village of Bamagar, pointed to an earthenware water pot from which every single student drinks. While their parents are unlikely to be found in the same room together, their children are growing up devoid of the prejudices that inhibited intercaste relationships in countless past generations these are small steps in a vast country of complex origins but it's clearly not just about the technology it's a story about people at the base of each tower responding to local needs what they learn from and teach each other we met trainers who were innovating adapting new technologies such as tablets and specialized apps to help teach english while others were teaching basic desktop skills from word processing to spreadsheets i'm still not sure how useful learning how to use a spreadsheet is when kids can't read or write in their own language but it's happening the work here within these invisible currents of wireless data is epic One young woman in Tolonia, the community broadcaster Arti, taught herself to install and maintain a Linux operating system as well as a host of audio production tools. She can't read nor write, but that didn't stop her from consulting YouTube. She achieved such self-learning without knowing a single word of English. This is Arti. After I'd interviewed her, She asked if I could help her install a cassette dubbing machine. It came with a manual. In French, 
She laughed when I explained through my interpreter that I couldn't read French, that I may have to refer to YouTube as well. In a way, learning to watch video tutorials is little different to how the young are taught traditional skills there. They learn by rote, by doing the same thing over and over, using images and songs to embed hundreds, maybe thousands of years of knowledge. Gradually you get to know what a digital audio workstation does and how to use it. Peel back the proverbial layers and step a few metres beyond any of these local resource centres, irrespective of the wireless towers that had brought them there, and one finds that the drop, as the poet Rumi so eloquently described, is indeed an ocean, but you must make the time to swim in it, to truly know what is taking place there, to follow the ripples up and downstream, to arrive where digital technology interweaves with tradition and complex cultural practices and knowledge systems. This has been the first episode of Right to Know. In episode two, we travel to the Indo-Nepalese border. We listen in on two public meetings where some people discover for the first time what a pension is and lightning strikes a building we are filming in. I'm Andrew Garten, and thank you for listening. <laughs>